turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews in chapter 2. So, so far in the book of Hebrews, we've talked about the fact, and this is kind of the, the point, is that he's, he's talking to these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish believers that are now followers of the Messiah, the fulfilled coming king that the Old Testament prophesied about, and they're, they've, they've been following him. They're second-generation believers. They b- have believed in what the apostles had spoke about, and many of them had heard their testimony. So imagine what it would be like to be a believer because you heard the Apostle Peter or because you heard the Apostle John speak the things that they personally witnessed and now you're believing in it. But as time goes on, every believer, I believe, comes to a point where they actually are tested on whether or not they believe what they've heard. Do I believe this personally? And life gets hard sometimes and and that's at the point where we get tested Say, okay, when the rubber meets the road, do you really believe what Jesus has said, what he has done, what he's accomplished? And so in the book of Hebrews, the writer, who we don't really know who it is, many believe he didn't put his name to this letter because he was, uh, you know, uh, afraid that they wouldn't receive his testimony. Many believe it was Paul, the apostle. And, And if you read the book of Acts, you see that Paul the Apostle would go into these towns. He would go first to the synagogue. Many times it wouldn't go well for him. And then he would go to the Gentiles in that town, wherever he was. But the first time he did this, right after his salvation in the book of Acts, it says that they got so mad at him that he had to find some believers and they lowered him outside the city wall in a basket. He had to flee and he had to have the other believers help him run away. And so persecution, especially to believers that used to be Jewish believers or that were Hebrews, um, they experienced the persecution that I think was a little bit more strongly because they were surrounded by people that were religious. And so when they start believing in this Messiah, they believe that the man Jesus Christ was a blasphemer. So to start following him, you would experience extreme pressure from those that used to go to synagogue with. And so um, he doesn't write his name. But as we went through chapter 1, the the key verse there was verse 1, where he says, um, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days spoken to us by his son. So we, as Christians, have God's final word on things through the person of Jesus Christ through his testimony, through everything that he taught and did. So as he goes through these these things that he talked about in chapter 1 and 2, he's really explaining the things that they saw in their Hebrew religion as being of the utmost importance. He's going to point out that Jesus is better than them. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the fulfillment of their testimony, whether it be angels, whether it be prophets, whether it be the teachers of the law, whether it be Moses. He's going to go through even Moses and say, Moses was great. He was the deliverer of the law. But guess what? Jesus is better because he's the God of Moses. And so as we get into chapter 2 today, I want to read for you back in verse 1 where we kind of ended on verse 4 last week. He says, therefore, in verse 1, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard lest we drift away. 
For if the word that was spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, then how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken of by the Lord, and then was confirmed to us by those who heard him, meaning the apostles? God also bore witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. How can we escape judgment if we neglect the salvation proclaimed by God himself in human flesh? So he has talked about how Jesus is better than the angels and talked about the fact that Jesus is God. He even refers to the Old Testament scriptures, says that Jesus is the son, that God is the father to him, um, that God's angels are actually servants to Jesus and that they were actually instructed to worship Jesus. And so as we've seen him and as this first chapter has pointed out that Jesus is God, that's helpful, right? But then what do we do with the scriptures that said that the Messiah would be a man? You know, to the Jewish believer, they were called to not worship anyone but God alone. It's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. None. And so to worship anything or any person or idol other than God is completely uh, detrimental to their faith. They were not allowed to do it. And so they, then he has to point out in Scripture how Jesus, being fully God, was also fully man. And you would imagine that as a Hebrew believer, they'd go, okay, he's fully man, he's fully God, but if he's a man and he has human flesh, then it still seems like the angels would be better than him because they're unlimited physically. They can do whatever they want according to the will of God. But a human, uh, he's limited. How, can, how in the world can he save us if he is subject to things like death just like us? And so he's going to point out that these things that happened to him because he was a human being actually meant for him being able to be the savior that he was. And so in verse 5, he goes on and he says this, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him above the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put in, excuse me, he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. So that's kind of a confusing verse, right? <laughs> but when it says there, God has put all things in subjection under Jesus, he then comments on their natural reaction. Okay, all things are in subjection to him, but it doesn't look like it right now practically. So what do we do with that? Is that a lie? And so what he says is, he says, for in that he has put all in subjection under him, therefore meaning that all means all. He says he left nothing that is not put under him. It seems like a, he's saying the same thing twice, and he is. He's saying that when the scriptures say that all things are under subjection to Jesus, 
he means that nothing was left that is not under his subjection. And then he says, but now <laughs> we do not see all things put under him. And you and I could testify to that, right? Jesus, we sing about him being Lord of all, and yet we look around creation. We look at men's hearts. We look at governments. We look at organizations. We look at crime, and we go, okay, uh, all things are supposed to be under Jesus' feet, but uh, practically it doesn't look like that. So how do, we, how do we regulate, how do we look at reality versus what Scripture says and go, okay, that's true. Well, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, that we walk by faith and not by sight. That this truth that is in Scripture is true. And yet, practically, it's not yet true. Because God is outside of time. And so he says there, but we see Jesus, who was, past tense, made a little lower than the angels, for the sufferings of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And so it's the talking of the first coming and the second coming. So I have there for you on the slide, he's talking about dominion. So if you turn with me, uh, not to Genesis, because in Genesis chapter 1, what we find is that in Genesis chapter 1, God gave the animals and the beasts of the field and the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea to be under the dominion of who? Adam. Adam got to name them even. And so he had creative license by God given the ability to name the animals and he was to have dominion over them. And we practice some dominion over animals, right? We got our own animals. We have animals that listen to us. We have at the same time animals that don't listen to us. Uh, many of us have dogs. We did until recently. And our dog would do what we said most of the time. Then he got older and he said, I'm going to lay here. And if you really want it done, you'll say it 14 times. Because I'm not going to waste a good get up. Um, but, but reality is, is that at the fall, dominion was lost. That we gave up our right to have dominion over animals, for the most part, at the fall. And so dominion is then regained in the world to come, is what he says. And I love that. We need to look at that phrase, in the world to come, because it is not yet. It's not that it's not, it's just that it's not yet. It's coming. And so if you turn with me to Psalm 8, we need to read the whole psalm to get the context of what the psalmist is writing. Psalm chapter 8. The glory of the Lord in creation is what mine calls it. A Psalm of David. Verse 1, he says, O Lord our God, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because your enemies, because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. I think it's interesting that he says the work of your fingers. Not, a, not even his whole hand. Think about what you can do with your fingers. Think about it. Like, you need the hand to do things, but he's just like, you know, what do we do with our fingers? We type on our phones. 
you know, uh, trying to think of some other things we do, you know, my daughter picks her nose, you know, this is his nose picking work, this isn't his Stradivarius building something work, you know, he used his whole hand to make us, but when he made the heavens and the earth, he says he uses his fingers, this was nothing for him, now, other places in scripture say he spoke and therefore it existed, but it's, it's, it's an anthropomorphism, I can't even say it, it means to ascribe some sort of human attribute to God so that we can kind of wrap our minds around what he has done. So when scripture says that he uses his fingers, it doesn't mean that God has fingers. He is spirit. He's not flesh. But in this scripture here, we have God being magnified in his creative ability. And it says the moon and the stars which you have ordained. We drove the other night. We, we got out of the, we got, we were in the van we had worship practice Thursday night, and I was just exhausted. I didn't want to go straight home, just go to bed. So we went for a little drive, and Kelly and I got to talk, and the kids were kind of hanging out, and they were wide awake. And so we drove around uh, Shepherd Mountain. And as we got to the other side, we parked there at the lake. And the moon has been beautiful this week. And the sky was clear, and so we rolled down the windows, and we just looked at it. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, he says uh, when I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you ordained. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you visit him? Have you ever considered that? God created all that we experience, the universe, the galaxies. I saw a slow uh, motion video the other night. It was like a four-hour video that was time-lapsed. And you could see sh like stars shooting across the sky. You could see the Milky Way galaxy, which we're a part of. And then because of where we're placed, we could see far beyond it. And, and they're finding that no matter how far out they send these telescopes and these, these probes into space, that it's so vast that they can't get to the end of it. And we're just in a little piece of it. And within that little piece, the Milky Way galaxy, we're 93 million miles away from our sun, the closest star. And, and even in that, I heard this week that, that Earth itself, if it was, think about that, 93 million miles. We can't even wrap our minds around that. But if we were two miles closer to the sun, we would die. Be too hot, water wouldn't exist, we couldn't exist. If we were two miles further away than 93 million miles, we would freeze. Water would freeze and we would not have drinking water. And we wouldn't be able to survive. And yet God, in his ordination, he chose to put us exactly the right distance so we could live and breathe and move and rebel against him and sin against him. And he doesn't cause it, he doesn't go, you know what, I'm done, two miles. He doesn't. He allows it in his grace and mercy. So I, I kind of get caught up in the Psalms. I don't know if you guys do, but I just read these things and I'm like, David doesn't have a telescope. He doesn't, he just is doing what he does. And so we see here, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands you have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, 
the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And so as we look at that, I want you to notice something. He says, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So this is what he's quoting in Hebrews. You've put all things under his feet, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. This was lost at the fall. And yet this psalmist is looking past that and seeing what would be regained. And so let's think about just for a minute, if you'll go to the next slide, I put there for you a couple of examples of how Jesus exercised dominion over creation. In the gospel account, we have these. He does it, he has dominion over fish. And, and one of the ones in the Old Testament was where God prepared a fish to swallow Jonah. There's the dominion of God in the Old Testament. But then we see Jesus having dominion over the fish. In Luke chapter 5, he actually is speaking to the disciples. And Peter and J John, I think, took him out on a fishing boat. He's preaching. And these guys are just like listening and they're kind of obliging him. They're giving him a platform and then he looks at Peter, and he says, I want you to cast your net over that side. They've been fishing all night, hadn't caught a thing. He's like, all right, what's, what am I got to lose? I'm a fisherman, I better get fishing. So he throws his net over the side, and he catches so many fish that the boat's tipping, and they bring in the nets, the net, nets are getting ready to tear. He's exercising dominion over the fish. It, God placed the fish there. Um, and then in John chapter 21, verse 1 through 11, when Peter has denied Christ three times, what does he do? He restores him, he pursues him, and he, he, he goes out there and, and, and he says, cast your net on the other side, Peter. And Peter, they do it and they pick up so many fish that Peter puts on his clothes, which I still don't understand why, and he swims to shore to go see. He goes, it's Jesus. He's resurrected. Here he is. And he swims to shore. He wants to be there. And um, then he does it over birds. And I have there for you Luke chapter 22. Many of you may not think of this as dominion over the birds, but Jesus actually told Peter, when you deny me, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And then the rooster crowed. Many times I thought that was just God seeing it ahead of time, but perhaps he was actually guiding the bird to crow. I don't know. I, I don't know if it was the day, time of day that he would actually crow. Maybe that's just a devotional thought. But then over beasts, he has dominion and he exercises it. We have it in Mark chapter 11 where he's coming into town. He tells his disciples to go ahead of him to get a colt, a foal of a donkey, and bring him back. He brings him back. This colt had never been ridden. Jesus gets on it. And it goes where he tells them to. Now, if you have animals and you've domesticated them or tried, you know that that is no small thing. That's a miracle. This was not an animal that had been ridden. It wasn't used to the saddle. It was not told what to do. It did what it wanted. Notice that it was tied up. That's because it would run off if it wasn't. And so Jesus exercising this dominion but in 2 Timothy, which we just studied uh, a couple of months ago, Paul writes something there that I find interesting. 2 Timothy 2, verse 11. Paul writes this. 
This is a faithful saying. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Reign, we shall also have dominion with him. So he says there, if we die with him, we shall also live eternally with him, just as he was the forerunner of resurrection. But then he says, if we endure with him, if we go through life's trials, we bear up under pressure, and we are faithful, it says there, we shall also reign with him. So in the way that he showed that he has dominion over creation and over life and existence, he's telling us through this scripture, um, we will also get to exercise that reign and that dominion. We will be joint heirs. And so back to the slide before, please. So all things have been put in subjection to Christ. And we do not yet see this practically. But in the meantime, he says there in verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. In other words, he humbled himself to be below the power of angels. But in order that he would suffer death and be crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. See, here's the thing about angels, they don't die. They're not subject to death. So in order for us to have salvation, someone had to die. There had to be a sacrifice without blemish, without spot. And in order for that to happen, something had to die that could die. So Jesus is better than the angels that he took on human flesh, though being fully God, and subjected himself and taste death for us. So they cannot taste death for anyone, so Jesus is better. So verse 10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. If I can get that next slide there. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And then he says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying i will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly i will sing praise to you and again i will put my trust in him and again here am i and the children whom god has given me can you be a brother or a sister to an angel no because they're not like kind, uh, just like your animals. You, you, can ha you can call your animals brothers and sisters, but if they're not the same kind, they can't be from the same bloodline. The next one. So he's talking about the family of God. You've heard that song, the old hymn, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Here's the problem with that. When we sing songs like that, many of you might have the idea of family or common brotherhood because of association. And what I mean by that is not our blood family, but hey, you've heard people call you brother. Maybe some of you work with calls you brother. Or, hey, sis, can you help me with this? You know, and, and we get this idea of brotherhood being a band of brothers, people that have been in the trenches together. But you cannot be a brother or a sister of someone that you're not actually related to, right? Well, not true. 
We can be through experiences, but God has called us to be a part of His family, and He makes us sons and daughters of God, not by blood relation, but by the Spirit. Because you and I are like our mothers and fathers because we are like them. Uh, we Physically, we look like them. Many of you have your own mini-me's running around your homes. Um, but we also become like them because we, we have the characteristics of them and we take on the um, character attributes of our families. And so if there's certain phrases that your family uses, just due to the fact that you're always around them, you start saying those phrases. You have the same mannerisms. So um, when Daniel Messiah was here, he talked about the fact that when Christians would pray, Heavenly Father, he thought it was odd that you could call God your daddy. He thought that because uh, to call God your dad in the Muslim religion was absolutely blasphemous because the Muslim God does not have children. But then he realized through that as he prayed and he said god am i supposed to call you daddy and he said he was even he opened up the window and was mocking god and god responded him by the spirit yes if you are born again i am your father by the spirit he gives us his spirit his character and and this fruit of the spirit is his character attributes love joy peace patience kindness gentleness faithfulness and self-control. And those are that's what our Father looks like, and that's what we start to look like. And so he talks about bringing many sons to glory. He says, It was fitting for him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. I have a picture of you, uh, for you of runners. But uh, captain doesn't necessarily mean someone who is ordering you, but it also means the forerunner, the person that goes before you. So the captain of our salvation is the one who went through death into life. Uh, the word captain, it means pioneer. And we in the Midwest know what it means to be a pioneer because we've read the stories or we've played Oregon Trail if you're of my generation. We had a computer game that showed the hardships of going across the nation looking for a better place to live. But the word pioneer or captain means one who opens the way for others. The gateway to the west is what? The arch. That was where they would come through, through St. Louis. There was no ferry there until someone first crossed the Mississippi, either fording or going across on a ferry, right? But that was dangerous. It was hard. It was scary i'm sure because they didn't know if it was even worth it to cross to the other side and yet jesus is the pioneer he opened the way for salvation but he had to go through death he has died for us but he also went through death to be the first one that went through it trusting the father to raise him to life again so when he quotes in psalm chapter 22 he says i will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. So why is he quoting that? We'll turn to Psalm 22, and we find a messianic psalm. Now, if you've ever studied the psalms, uh, they're all about Jesus in some way or another. But the messianic psalms talk about specific things that Jesus would go through 
and do in his life here on earth. And they told them through the pens of people that lived way before him. That wouldn't even be possible. Did you ever watch um, uh, Back to the Future 2, the best one? I've had dreams about the the little floating skateboard. Um, But in there, uh, what does he do? Biff, the bad guy, he gets an almanac. And I don't know if it's a sports almanac. And it tells who won all the games that year. I thought an almanac was supposed to tell things ahead of time. But apparently it tells what's already happened. Um, But anyway, in that, he finds out who's going to win every major sporting event. And he starts using it to bet on things. Do you know that God's left us a sports almanac? Do you know that God's given us his word and it's actually better than the one in Back to the Future? You know, many of us would probably do the same thing. I got... The future scoring results, I'm going to bank on it. Uh, Did you know that we can actually bank our future on that? That we can store up riches just like Biff did. Well, we have that in the Psalms even, as these men of God were writing and they were pinning things down. Many of them didn't know, I said this last week, they didn't know what they were writing. They were just writing what they were going through. And yet David in his prayer time was writing this song and it's about Jesus. And as we read it, I want you to look at what, what it says. He says in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? He says, why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and you were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. And truly, Jesus was despised by his brethren. All those who see, my, see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. And they did say that to him. While he was on the cross, they said what? He saved others, and yet he cannot save himself. Why don't you just pull yourself down off the cross, Jesus? And so he's penning this down almost word for word. And then it says there um, in verse 9, But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me to trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. See, David's just really writing about his own life. He's crying out to God, Lord, you've protected me from birth. And yet you could see the parallel where Jesus even, taking on human flesh, wasn't born 30 years old and then started ministry. He was born as a child in weakness, and he went through all the things that we do. He was nursed. He was weaned. He was protected throughout his life. And then verse 12 says, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. How many of you have seen um, that series, the movies they've done, um, the, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? What's the series? Oh, Narnia, thank you. And in that series, if you watch the one where uh, Aslan is killed, he's on this table and he's stretched out. Did you notice who was surrounding him? Fierce animals. And so you see the parallel that, that he was making between that scene where Aslan is being destroyed and killed by wickedness, and he literally willingly gave himself up, this 
idea of redemption and an and innocent sacrifice. And then here in this passage, we see kind of the same scene where he's saying, many bulls have surrounded me. They've encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. They were just destroying him. He says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue clings to my jaw. You have brought me to the dust of the earth. Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet and I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. It's word for word. It's insane. And yet what it says there, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. So he says at that point, into your hands I commit my spirit, right? He, 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 he released his spirit at the time that he desired. He was in complete control. And then verse 22 is where we have the, the quote from today in Psalms. So we see all these things that he fulfilled. And then in verse 22 it says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And you, all you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied, and those who seek him will praise the Lord let your heart live forever. And so as he goes on, I submit to you that this is no longer about crucifixion, but it's about the kingdom that comes at his second coming. So this Messiah, his work is not complete yet, is the point I'm making. That he will come back and fulfill the rest of this psalm word for word. So he's perfect. So back in this passage, he says um, in verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Meaning that they are all descendants now of God. You've been given the right to be children, sons and daughters of God. And in John chapter 1 verse 12, John writes about this very idea before he even gets start with the rest of the book. We read a couple weeks ago about God being the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. But if you go down to verse 12, here's what it says. Well, verse 10 says, He was in the world, the world was made through Him, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but the will of God. So if you've been born again, you're not just a redeemed saint that's been left here with no lineage, but you are actually a child of God, literally, by the Spirit. And so um, he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 2, after saying that we are in his likeness, he says, um, lost my place. He was perfected through suffering. And so I want to talk about that for just a minute. In verse 10, it says, In bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Was Jesus perfect, I guess, is the question I have for you. And the answer is yes, but what it says in this passage is that Jesus could not have become an adequate Savior and high priest for us had he not become man and suffered and died. He was tested. He was tested and found approved. Now, if a product goes on the shelf and it says tested and approved, the fact that it's tested doesn't say that it mean that it, it had to be tested and then it failed. It means that it was tested and it's worthy of consumption or, or production or buying it. And so Jesus, in the same way, was found to be perfect through testing. He was not unlike us, but he went through temptation and, and proven uh, not faulty, but, but perfect. So in verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus, by taking on human flesh and then dying, actually destroyed Satan's power over men, showing that by the Spirit we could overcome and no longer be subjected to, to sin and the temptation to sin. And then he says, and then release those who through fear of death were in their lifetime subject to bondage. So on the next slide I have for you there, that Jesus defeated or he disarmed Satan. Now, obviously, he is not yet disarmed because he is still alive and well and working where we are. But the word destroy that he uses there means render inoperative to make of no effect. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, he says there, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So Satan is still at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what Paul writes in Romans. But to those who are of a new kingdom, who have received the Spirit of God, he no longer has dominion over us. We actually can tell him no and disobey. But we have to do that. And in James, he actually says, therefore, Submit to God, which is the first step, and then resist the devil and he will flee from you. Uh, defeating Satan and, and disobeying his lies and his commands can only be done in that we are submitted first and foremost to Jesus as Lord. You cannot serve two masters, right? But then he also released those who were captive to fear of death. The word release there means to deliver, to remove, to set free. We who were in bondage to fear of death. I put were in quotes because how many Christians, maybe some of you, still live your lives in fear of death? Death. What is the worst thing that can happen to us in this life? Death. We've been freed from that. We will not die. We, we, we will die, but we will pass through death into eternal life. 
the worst thing that can happen to us, the worst, if you're a worrier about your children, the worst thing that can happen to them is that they would die. And don't get me wrong, I have kids now, I'm not oblivious. That would destroy me. It would be very trying. It would be crazy. I would probably go a little crazy. But the only hope that I would have would not be necessarily that God could bring them back, although he can do that. Daniel Messiah's book, Dana read it, and she was sharing with me. He, he actually, his son had drowned in a pool, and he got there, and the paramedics were like, it's over. And he, in his distraughtness, goes, God's good. I'm going to ask him. He's my daddy. And he prayed, and God brought life back into his son in front of everybody that was standing there. And he still does that. He had already been in a body bag for 45 minutes. This is, you know, it's Lazarus. Uh, Lord, he's been in the, in the, he's been in the grave for three days. By now he stinketh, you know. And, and then Jesus goes, hey, I, I don't pray this, Father, because I don't trust you. I pray so that they'll know it was you. Would you bring this man back to life? And then he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, they removed the stone. Lazarus walked out of the grave. This is our God. This is his ability to bring life into dead situations. And so um, my main point in sharing that is that, that we no longer have to be afraid. Not of that. Because God has defeated death by his son. Fear of death is bondage. It is slavery. It locks us up. It makes us fearful of doing things that God is calling us to do. The Christian has no need to fear. The worst that can happen is actually our reward. So Jesus, the point is, did not become like angels to save them. He actually became like us to save us. That's crazy to me. And so in verse 17 and 18, as we close, he says, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people that word propitiation actually just means a payment that turns away wrath and so he's made payment on our behalf of those who trust him for the sins of the people for in that he himself has suffered being tempted he is able to aid those who are tempted so the last point i want to make to you this morning is that we who are partakers of this salvation have a high priest that when he went to heaven, didn't just go, okay, I'm going to go back about my business. He's still praying for us every moment, every hour. And it's hard for us to imagine, but he does not sleep nor slumber. He's praying for us like the high priest used to do in the temple. So he's, he's telling these Hebrew believers that our Savior is praying for us. He's interceding. He's making propitiation for us. So on that last slide, he says he suffered being tempted as we are tempted. So because of that, he's also able to uh, aid us who are still being tempted. How many of you spend your time going through hard situations and go, nobody understands me. Nobody knows what I'm going through. I've heard moms talk about sending their kids off. They don't know what it's like. They don't know what I'm going through. Jesus knows. He had to leave his father. He had to be separated from him. The Father knows. He knows what it's like to send his child somewhere that's not safe. He did it. He knew. He knew it led to death. 
So he's able to aid us who, who are still susceptible to temptation. So Jesus was not inferior because of his human body, but instead was better able to do what he was sent to accomplish. You are not inferior. You've been given the same Holy Spirit that Jesus was empowered by. You are not limited by your circumstances. You are not limited by your life situation that you're in right now. You're not limited because of your physical ability or inability. Um, you're actually, by God's grace, empowered to do what he's given you to do. So maybe you've got lots of health problems. Guess what? Those aren't limiting you from doing what God's given you to do. He's allowed those at the very least. At the very most, he's given them to you so that you can minister to the people he wants to send you to. But in the same way, we being redeemed men and women, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are enabled to be messengers of the gospel. We're messengers. So I have for you one more passage in 2 Corinthians 4, and then we'll close with a song. 2 Corinthians 4, in verse 7, says this, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. For we are hard-pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but we're not left alone. We're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We always carry about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be revealed in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, and therefore I spoke. Daniel talked about that when he was here. He said, I believed, and therefore I spoke. We also believe, and therefore we speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus, and we will, he will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. So that passage in Psalm 8 where he said, out of children he has perfected praise. And that's what the verse was that he quoted when Jesus came in on the, on the day of his triumphal entry. But do you know that praise, the fruit of our lips, when he quotes that verse, the same word is strength. Out of childs and children and nursing infants, he has perfected praise. Out of children and nursing infants, you and I, he has perfected strength. Praise leads to strength. So, Father, who do we praise? I come to you this morning and I praise you for being the God of strength. You are the God of strength. You took on human flesh. You lived a life and you exhausted yourself to do what God gave you to do. Many of us are tired. As a matter of fact, many of us have tons of stuff to do today. Many of us um, are looking forward to just resting today. But in each and every situation, Lord, we are your children. And so we're asking that you would perfect strength in us.
I thank you for joining this group together today to praise you. I pray that out of their, the fruit of their lips, out of the praise, that you would fulfill that scripture that says that you have perfected praise and strength. Lord, strengthen us in the day of adversity. Strengthen us on the days where things are going easy. Help us to find our strength in you. But thank you that we have this Savior who understands everything that we experience who has never failed, and who is able to strengthen us for whatever we might go through. Thank you for identifying with us. Thank you that in chapter 4 we're going to see that, that you were in all ways tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Lord, would you make that life that lives in you live in us. Glorify your name amongst those who we know. Those who do believe in you, give us a good testimony with them. Those who don't believe in you. Give us a good testimony with them. And those who will believe in you, Lord, help us to beg you for their salvation. Help us to pray for them. Help us to live before them in the power of the Spirit. And we can only do that by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.